Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Limited access to transportation is well established as a barrier to people obtaining healthcare services. If it's hard to get to the doctor, you're less likely to go, and that means delays getting needed care, poorer management of chronic conditions, and more use of the emergency room. Now, while health insurance typically covers emergency transportation, say for an ambulance, coverage of non-emergency transportation to get you to a doctor's visit is less common. Medicaid, which serves people with low incomes, has covered this type of transportation for decades, but it's become increasingly clear that plenty of people with incomes above the Medicaid eligibility threshold face significant transportation barriers. Thus, some insurers and health systems have begun to offer a non-emergency transportation benefit as well. The effect of providing a transportation benefit is the topic of today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm speaking with Seth Berkowitz, Assistant Professor in the Division of General Medicine and Clinical Epidemiology at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. Dr. Berkowitz and colleagues published a paper in the March 2022 issue of Health Affairs assessing the effects of a non-medical transportation benefit offered to members of a Medicare Accountable Care Organization. Enrollees had very positive reactions to the program, but it was also associated with more outpatient visits per person per year and thousands of dollars more in outpatient spending. We'll talk about these findings and more in today's episode. Dr. Berkowitz, welcome to the program. Great. Thanks Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. I really want to get into this uh, paper and the broader issues that it uh, raises. This uh, paper had some mixed methods. You had a quantitative analysis of how people used the benefit and its effects on uh, utilization. And then there was a qualitative aspect where you got people's reactions to the benefit. So let's start on the quantitative side. Um, As I noted at the outset, uh, we've had non-emergency medical transportation in Medicaid for some time. What does that look like for a Medicare ACO? What was the intervention? What did you uh, try to find out about its consequences? Yeah, so um, you know the our uh, the ACO that is in the health associated with the health system that I work for um, instituted this program in 2017, and I think like many programs, it takes advantage of the emergence of sort of um, you know rideshare app based um, transportation being relatively easily available, and so what they um, do is that have they have central population health managers and people referred into the program um, from clinicians or other things where they identify transportation barriers, can work with people to get um, transportation set up. Usually it occurs using a, um, a sort of rideshare app-based um, program. Occasionally there are people with extra transportation needs that can't be accommodated, like if you need a, a specific wheelchair van or something like that. So they'll use some other vendors then, but virtually all the, the um, transportation occurrences went through um, sort of this rideshare-based program. And the idea was just, as you said, to, to make it so that people can come to their routine medical appointments. So this was sort of a Monday to thri- Friday, nine to five um, type thing. Um, you could set it up in advance when you know you have an appointment. They could do a stat request, like if, um, you know, an appointment occurred and then someone needed to go get a CT scan or something like that and it wasn't planned, you could do that too. But but the idea is it's sort of routine outpatient things, not a replacement for ambulances for a trip to the emergency department or something like that. So you note, I mean, this is sort of a new development. You've got Uber and Lyft uh, that didn't exist decades ago with a pool of potential 
uh, ride providers, and they've gotten into this business, which used to be sort of held by a few contracts. Uh, now it's much easier to set these things up. Uh, people are screened into the program because there's a need that's been identified, um, and they start getting these rides. What were you looking to try to figure out what the effects might be? Yeah, so we wanted to kind of piece it through the whole chain of what might happen. I mean, so as you mentioned, this is associated with an ACO. And so, you know, the the idea of a lot of these things is a shared savings type model. So looking for places where, um, you know, investing upfront can have some sort of down, downstream payoff. And so the, I think the idea here is that um, if you're not able to get to your regular outpatient appointments, then that can um, lead to, you know, exacerbation of chronic conditions or things get worse when they otherwise might not have. That you know, leads to an emergency department visit or a hospitalization that is much more expensive. And so we wanted to kind of take each thing step by step. We wanted to see first, does this in fact actually get people to more outpatient visits? Because that's sort of the the premise of it. And then second, um, if we take into account the, um, the outpatient visits and the inpatient and emergency department and other visits, is there sort of a total um, effect of the program in terms of lower spending, lower utilization and things of that nature? And what we found is that it, that it is associated with uh, increased use of outpatient visits. So, so people are using it and people are getting to the visits. Those visits themselves generate um, healthcare costs, and we found an increase of spending on the cost of the visits in addition to the cost of the program actually transporting people to, to the visits. Sort of as an aside, the cost of the actual transportation itself was relatively low. I think the mean was around $500 per person per year, but even that is driven by a small number of people with very frequent use, like they have to go to dialysis or something like that. And many people used it only once or twice, and so their cost was $20 or $40. I mean, so something very, very low in terms of healthcare spending terms. But outpatient spending increased. Uh, however, despite getting to more visits, we didn't see any real difference in um, utilization for inpatient or um, emergency department um, use. And so total cost was not statistically significantly different, but the direction of it was towards more spending, largely because of that increase in outpatient spending with it basically being a wash in terms of inpatient and ED, both spending and utilization. So the ACO is on the hook and they're thinking, well, if we get people more early services, they won't have these high cost services. There's an evidence base to suggest that that could happen. And they give people all these rides and not surprisingly, utilization associated with those rides goes up. The other side doesn't come down. How long a period were you looking at here? The um, program was running for, uh, well, so the, the maximum length of time was about two and a half years. I think the, um, I have to look back at the exact numbers for the mean, but on average, people were were using it for somewhere between a year and two years. And we actually did do some secondary analyses that looked at, um, for example, so maybe if uh, you had some transportation barriers up front, then you had a big um you know, you hadn't gotten care for a while, so you used it a lot, then things settled out. So did we see any differences in the second year of use as opposed to the first year? But we actually didn't see see much difference there. But around a year or two is about how long most people were using the program. You had enough time for some of these positive reductions in cost associated with emergency care to play out, but they didn't. Um, okay, so the ACO, of course, is trying to save some healthcare dollars, but it's also trying to meet the needs of its enrollees so that they want to get their services there. And you had this qualitative component. And I just have to say, reading the paper, and I'm not going to read through them, uh, I was really struck by some of the quotations of people who were on the program 
and some of the themes that you drew out about the value they assigned to it. It was a, a pretty complicated picture. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about some of those themes. Yeah. And I, I was really struck by them um, as well. And I, I, you know, I can say, and I guess this is just sort of a take my word for a thing, but you always wonder about, you know, when you see these quotes and papers are these sort of cherry picked and like only the best ones, but I can tell you, I mean, we, for going through all the transcripts of coding these, this was one of the most, the projects where I was struck by what people had said the most. And we honestly could have filled, you know, two or three different papers with alternative quotes saying the same thing. So, I mean, the, 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 this is a really the, the quotes that we're talking about that I'll get into in a, in a second are were um, you know really strongly endorsed by people. There are a couple things that I thought people that really highlighted that I, that I think were really important. Um, one was the um, sort of the the financial burden of transportation on themselves, um, and so so that represented a really valuable savings. Again, um, you know w- when we look at it with our sort of um, you know eye on uh, sort of. You know, eye-popping healthcare costs when you know it's routine to spend you know twenty thousand or more per person per year on some things. You say something like, "Well, you know, someone got a twenty-dollar ride or a forty-dollar ride. How big a difference could that make?" But um, when you listen to people, it was a big difference and a real relief. So that was one for themselves. The second was just not feeling like a burden on others, and that honestly, I think, is maybe the thing that came out most strongly again and again. You know, not having to ask people for rides, not having to interrupt their schedules. A lot of times, you know, because this is a, a Medicare ACO, it's older individuals. And so a lot of the people providing rides were their children. And so I think your parents in particular, um, you know, there's a lot of reluctance on disrupting your kid's life and asking for help from them in particular. And so that, um, being able to relieve them, that burden was really important. And then the third thing was just around their relationship with healthcare providers. And I mean, um, and I, I by no means think that providers were giving people this impression, but I was struck by how much people internalized their own transportation barriers, which are kind of in no way their fault as things that they were doing wrong in terms of their health. Uh, you know, and, and people would have these quotes that were like, well, my doctor's trying to help me, but I can't do it and I'm sort of letting them down and other things. And and by having these transportation programs, people were able to um, you know, attend clinic visits more and they just felt like they were much more engaged with their care. They felt like they were doing their part in a way that I don't, again, I don't think any doctor was um, implying, but that was just sort of how people were internalizing it. And so it really seemed like it was a big deal in terms of being able to take control of your health and your treatment plan and uh, and engage with your with your healthcare providers. Yeah, there's this whole sense of empowerment, not being a burden to family or friends, not being a burden on the healthcare system where you're not holding up your end of the bargain. I mean, we I expected to see the financial relief to be meaningful, but uh, you know, there's a whole research base around people's sense of efficacy uh, in the healthcare sector and the notion that providing some rides uh, could change people's sense of efficacy really made uh, quite an impression on me. I'm glad it did on you too. So there's this terrific line in the paper uh, where you say it's important to rethink the rationale for transportation programs of the type studied here. I think this is a very profound finding, and I'm just going to tease you and say, let's talk about it a little bit more after we take a short break. Health Affairs Pathways is a new podcast series exploring the various avenues and alleyways of the healthcare system through a variety of storytelling. 
Unique series are created by fellows at the Health Affairs Podcast Fellowship Program. Join the fellows on their journey to unearth a new healthcare story on such topics as healthcare consolidation, independent primary care, health equity, and more. Our second season is a seven-part series from Avni Kolkerny and Sonia Lee. Their series, titled Why We Wait, looks into the topic of mental health boarding in the emergency department. Subscribe wherever you listen. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Seth Berkowitz about a non-emergency medical transportation benefit provided to enrollees in a Medicare Accountable Care Organization, or ACO. We heard some of the findings from the study about it increasing utilization and increasing people's engagement with the health system. But the formula for an ACO is shared savings, which means reducing healthcare costs, and it, it didn't do that. So before the break, I read this quote from the paper about the need to rethink the rationale for transportation programs. Uh, Tell me what you had in mind when you wrote that sentence and what you think the implications are of it. Yeah, so I think uh, so. I think to one extent, this is maybe more specific for transportation programs, but I think in another sense, is, is sort of broader for a number of health-related social needs type interventions that have you know sprung out around the same time as the um, payment models like ACOs and other shared savings models and value-based care type models and things like that. Specifically for transportation, um, you know, the the rationale around savings, I think, needs to be interrogated a little bit because of this issue of having to increase um, outpatient costs to for the thing to work. I mean, so the idea is not only the cost of the transportation program, but you actually get people to visits and they receive care. And that fundamentally is going to um, add some additional costs. Not that that couldn't, you know, in theory, be um, uh, be. Um, traded off with, with reductions in emergency department or, or inpatient use. But you're you're going to see a fair amount of cost increase there in a way that I think is different than, say, a, a food insecurity intervention, which is another area I work in, where the cost of the food is often modest, and it doesn't necessarily generate other clinical care um, costs. But transportation programs, by their nature, are bringing people to clinical care, and so so there'll be those other things there. So that's an important element to, to think through a little bit. But but sort of more broadly about health-related social needs things overall, uh, health-related social needs interventions overall is, um, you know, th- this rationale in shared savings. I, one element, uh, w- one reason that I like studying utilization and cost as healthcare outcomes is I do think there's a, there's a sense in which they reflect health. I think all else being equal, the, a person who needs to use less health care is probably healthier in some way. And health is such a multi-dimensional and hard to measure concept. I think we need a lot of different measures of that. And so I, I think there's something real about utilization and cost in some ways being a good measure of health, but it's not the only measure. And I think if we only focus on that as the measure of important health outcomes, which you're sort of prompted to do when you have a um, model that is, you know, choosing interventions based on their potential for for savings, then I think we miss other important things that really get back to why we're delivering healthcare in the first place. I mean, overall in healthcare, you know, across all kinds of treatments, medications and surgeries and things like that, we're not necessarily spending money to save money, we're spending money to improve health. And there are maybe some ways that also have implications for longer term healthcare costs, but that is often secondary, or, or at least not the, the primary motive for things. And I think the 
coincidence is the right word, but the but the um, contemporaneousness of health related social needs interventions and shared savings and other sort of you know value based cared models, I think puts a connection between those two programs in, in all of our minds. But but I think we want to. It may be time to sort of step back and, and uh, rethink that. Okay, so I want to do that with you. You've obviously given this a lot of thought, and I my mind was spinning as I listened to you. So <laughs> if you start with the idea of the ACO sharing savings, it comes from a lot of different places. Part of it is the evidence on uh, overuse and highly variable rates of use, saying, look, if you're in a place where people are using too much care, maybe you can squeeze it down. There are no negative health consequences. It also, as we know from a number of not just shared savings, but some of the bundling programs, a lot of it's about price. It's about uh, putting a health system uh, at risk for finding low-cost uh, post-acute care or something else like that. Those dynamics totally make sense, but that's not the scenario here. Here, it, we're talking about a situation of, of, of potential significant underuse. And so, as you noted, maybe you get some savings from reducing inpatient or emergency use associated with ambulatory sensitive conditions, but that's a much harder calculus than negotiating a better price with your, uh, you know, device company. So, so like the frame, the, the, the framework, I should say, of the ACO works or the logic of it is pretty clear in some areas, but here it's much more muddled. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right, and um, you know, and I, and I, and one thing that I want to make clear is I I don't think that that in the ACO model or the people engaged in this are sort of you know the stereotypical bean counters who only care about the bottom line and don't improve health. I mean, the the goal is to um, you know still deliver high quality care while cutting back on, on areas that don't contribute to that. And so the, the cost savings is not meant to be cost savings through, um, you know, reducing useful um, uh, healthcare services of, of any kind. Fundamentally, I think here, and, and another thing that you alluded to, I think one thing that strikes me just doing work in the health-related social needs field in general is, um, you know, kind of kind of an asymmetry or a different category that some of these programs are held to compared with other things that may also contribute to health. I think we've all, at this point, you know, uh, thirty years into the health-related and the social determinants of health movement and other things, I think we all know that you know healthcare is not the only and maybe not even the predominant um, determinant of what makes. Um, things healthy. And I think it's very exciting that one expression of that is that we're looking for things like transportation programs and food insecurity interventions for their effects on health in a way that really wasn't done even 10 or 15 years ago. We also, you know, I think that also means we need to kind of treat all of our potentially health improving interventions. Um, similarly, whether that's, uh, you know, drug treatment, whether that's a, um, you know, an inpatient rehab, you know, cardiac rehab program, a surgery, et cetera, all of these have potential to improve health in a meaningful way. All of them have costs um, required to make them work. And I think it's important as we broaden our scope to uh, of what can improve health to kind of treat all these different interventions on a on an equal um, playing field um, in terms of evaluating them. And and so I think you know saying well the the shared savings model is only going to be applied for the health related social needs interventions, but for medications, you know we're just going to you know do um, you know business as usual for that. That doesn't make as much sense to me. Not saying that there might not be many instances where medications are more effective for improving health than some of these other programs. There may well be, but I think we 
can evaluate them in a more similar way. And also when it comes to thinking about where savings can come from, we, sh- we should be open-minded in that sense too. Um, you know, I mean, one thing that, that you know, there's been a, been a lot of talk about, but it still just strikes me as crazy in terms of um, wanting to uh, reduce the amount we're spending on healthcare in the U.S. and not keeping this option open is the fact that Medicare can't negotiate for um, for drug prices, right? I mean, that seems like an obvious place to look for, and may well have savings that that swamp you know many other types of approaches, and yet that is just kind of completely off the table um, in a political sense in a lot of ways, or intermittently it gets back on the table, but doesn't stand there for very long, maybe. Um, and so again, again, not to say that I that I privilege the health related social needs interventions over any other medical intervention. I'm a primary care doctor. I you know prescribe many more drugs than I prescribe health related social needs interventions. So I'm I'm you know well aware of their benefits. But I just think we need to think equally about um, how to evaluate the the costs and benefits of, of all these different types of interventions. Well, that makes sense. But you threw another uh, wrinkle into the conversation when you noted that a lot of the social interventions would be expected to sort of directly reduce healthcare costs. You have more stable housing, your health needs go down, your ability to follow any sort of health-related regimen goes up. But transportation by intention, in the first instance, increases utilization. That's what it's there for. When you talk about putting things sort of on an even playing field, which I think is a, a it's always a nice uh, a way to think about it, even comparing transportation to food uh, is probably they they shouldn't be measured the same way either, should they? Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. I think it, you know this is definitely a you know devil in the details type situation where you know broadly they're they're similar. We can think of housing and transportation and food as kind of some of the key health related social needs that a lot of programs identify. But the nuts and bolts and the, the logistics of how you actually address those in order to improve health and what the the you know the sort of mechanism um, f- starting from addressing that to seeing improved health goes is different for for the programs um, and, and that definitely needs to be taken into account. In our next conversation, when we've both had more time to think about it, I'd, <laughs> I'd love to to really tease out this notion of what a level playing field would look like across social and traditional medical determinants, as you were talking earlier, as well as social determinants that are designed to be health avoid health need avoiding relative to those that are sort of health use promoting and and I do think this issue of underutilization as a source of harm and whether the primary financial mechanism for addressing underutilization should be uh, savings associated only with downstream savings from ambulatory sensitive health services as opposed to just like maybe we should just Try to address underutilization. Uh, some, something, something's got to give there. Yeah, no, I think that I think that's totally right. And one um, thing that we've thought about coming out of this study, the the sample size that we had was uh, relatively small, so we didn't look at it. But there are other, you know, again, the utilization was sort of the the key thing that everyone was looking for. But there are also things like, you know, does getting here um, help you get your colonoscopy or other form of colorectal cancer screening um, better? Which is both health promoting, but also there might be finance, you know, through quality, you know, pay for performance type um, or quality metric things, there might be financial um, 
uh, incentives, beneficial financial incentives associated with that as well, or other types of cancer screening or getting your vaccines and stuff like that. And so there is more that can be um, looked at. And I think your distinction of things that are health need avoiding versus, you know, uh, ways to address uh, poor access um, is a really uh, is a really important one. And I think there are a lot of implications for how we think about the evaluation of programs based on which direction they're, they're going in. Yeah, so we'll have to get a paper on that topic. In the meantime, you mentioned uh, you've also done a lot of work on food and you're a primary care doc. I just love before we wrap up, tell me a little about how you got into this area and what you think the frontier of research is. Because there's, as you noted, we've been talking about social determinants for a long time. You've been looking at them for quite some time. What's what's your focus? Yeah, I mean, so to, in the in terms of the question of how you know I sort of got into this, I mean, I really um, fundamentally think that that my research interests are driven by the experiences that I have as a primary care doctor, um, and even before I was a primary care doctor, going back to you know being a medical student and then and then a resident. Um, you know, I always, I sometimes tell a story about how my residency was during the previous pandemic, the 2009 um, H1N1 um, flu. And I I was in a residency program that had an open ICU. So we would take care of people in the ICU in the morning, and then I might go across the street for my um, clinic. And I was amazed at the juxtaposition of the medical technology we had, you know, we had people intubated and proned and on CVVHD and on four pressors. And we got people who were incredibly sick, who no one expected to live through it. And with H1N1, a lot of the people who were affected were people in their 30s and 40s, relatively healthy people. And so we had a number of cases of people who were really on death's door, got through an ICU stay, and were like back to back to regular health. It was amazing. I mean, the, the uh, medical technology there was incredibly impressive. But then I would go across the street to see my diabetes patient and their A1C was still out of control because they couldn't afford healthy food, or they'd had an episode of hypoglycemia because they were on sulfonylurea because it was the cheapest medicine and they couldn't afford a medicine with less hypoglycemia risk or something like that. And just that juxtaposition of those things was really clear. Transportation barriers, the same thing, you know, you know, have patients who are lovely and, and have, uh, you know, many of the same sentiments, um, of patients on my own panel as we're expecting the uh, paper where they, you know, feel bad that they're not able to engage with care. or They really see transportation barriers, a real thing that's keeping them from taking control of their um, health. And so, you know, a lot of my research just really come down um, to what don't I have the tools to do as a primary care doctor that, that I wish I would have um, that, that I think may improve people's health. To your question about the future, I mean, so I really try to think in parallel in two ways. I I think there's one question or one sort of set of questions that are very much rooted in my experiences as a clinician and and are based on more or less a a one-on-one person-to-person type model. What can, you know, one um, person do, or maybe a little more broadly, what can a healthcare team or a healthcare system do to help a specific person overcome specific barriers for for their health? And that's where things like the transportation programs can be very um, helpful or food and vegetable prescriptions or medically tailored meals or some of the other food and security interventions I've looked at can be very helpful. The second side of things, though, is this sort of intersection of social policy and health outcomes. What can we as a society um, do at a policy level to make it so that people don't have those health-related social needs and those barriers in the the first place? And these are where things um, like looking at SNAP policy or unemployment insurance policy or other um, things there, I think, are really important as well. And I, I view those as both parallel and important things. I don't think social policy is the only solution because, you know, no matter how good your social policy is, there may be people who still have needs and the intersection of needs and clinical 
um, conditions may require a little bit of expertise that a healthcare system or a physician or a care team can provide. And so I think there it's very possible that there's value added there and we're finding circumstances where that's the case. But I think it's also fair to say we just have way too many people who are food insecure in the U.S. We have way too many people with transportation barriers. We have made too many people with housing instability. And those solution, those problems require social policy solutions as well. And so I think working on both of those things has been meaningful to me and seems like, seems like the right approach of not you know only doing one or the other. Well, Dr. Berkowitz, uh, you've really helped me understand and think differently about the incentive structure here. Um, I appreciate the research and I'm really glad you had a qualitative component because the quantitative results are important, but uh, I don't think we could have had the conversation we had if we didn't have the qualitative side. Um, thank you so much for being my guest today on A Health Policy. Thanks. It was great to join you. And thanks for the invitation. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about A Health Policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening. <laughs>